some years ago, in a museum in Vienna, I stood before a painting by Gustav Klimt. It was called The Water Nymphs, or alternatively, The Mermaids, or The Silver Fish. Amongst glittery gold flecks were aqueous forms daubed in oils. Their heads encircled and swathed in black hair that tapered into long, almost tear-shaped tails. Critics describe these figures as tadpoles, or seaweed, or high society ladies encased in sperm. I'm not joking. Meanwhile, the panel next to the piece in the museum said that in the painting Klimt was trying to depict Flüchtigkeit, which equates to something like transience or brevity or fleetingness. It showed the fluid, ever-flowing essence of time and life. It reminded me of another phrase from the German language, embedded in one of the great stories of all time. Legend has it that a devil named Mephistopheles made a bet with God that he could get a good bloke to look at a present moment and say, Verweile doch, du bist so schön. Stay a while. You're so beautiful. Of course, the present moment does nothing but passes us by. That decent man, whose name was Faust. He couldn't make it stay, even with kind compliments and a fluttering of the eyelashes. But haven't we all had a crack at trying to make a moment in time last forever? Or at least thought about it? I'd been reading this story, written by the great man Goethe, when I ran into a German acquaintance. Thus I asked him to tell me about a time when he'd wanted to make time stop. It was because of a woman, he answered. Of course. You should have seen her. Although I hardly did myself. I was in a seafarer's tavern at sunset. I was leaning on my mug of wine, trying to ignore my companion, who was whinging about some paperwork. The tavern door was ajar. It reflected the street at a curious angle. It was hard to calculate exactly what part of the street I was actually seeing. And then suddenly appeared the most beautiful woman I've ever seen, in the reflection. Waves of dark hair hung over her shoulders like bolts of silk. Ah, he said, I should have run out into the street. I'm not sure what I would have said to her, but whatever happened, it would have changed my life. But instead I blinked, and she was gone. My mate paused and added, I cannot tell you how often I return to that moment and wonder what might have been. The word fleeting seems to be a part of a large stable of words that go back to a root which means 
to flow. In that group we also get words like fickle, floating, drifting, swimming, fleeing and flight across all sorts of languages. Some etymologists say that even the Armenian verb to wish is related. There's no evidence that the word infatuation is connected to this linguistic heritage, but I would like to include it here anyway. For most of us will have felt what my German mate described. The imagination needs only the smallest niche in which to lodge a spore that will grow into something enormous. The reality is that probably nothing would have changed if my mate had tipped over his goblet of wine and chased the random woman out into the street. Yet it's also true that something might have come from it. For each fleeting moment knocks into the next, and life is a long and tangled line of dominoes in which every tile clunks into another. Fate is also not related to the word fleet, but I find sometimes that the two words can blur. The ideas within them can meld, and we can therefore find ourselves lost in the daydream of innumerable other lives we may have stumbled into. The mood turns on us. We find ourselves wishing, like Faust would, that we could cling to present circumstances as if to a life raft, so that it wouldn't drift or float or mutate into the next stage of reality, thus leaving behind however many hundred could have been. Klimt painted his nymphs, his tadpoles, his mermaids, his mackerel, whatever they are. And what made it such an impressive painting for me was that he'd somehow captured the quicksilver of our lives on a single canvas. I later walked out into the streets of Vienna and looked around at the city traffic, the people wandering through. Multitudes who might turn into anything the moment they'd stepped past me. I saw each face for only an instant, and yet a whole life, possibly a very long one, is merely made up of a handful of those instants, messily glued together like a child's shitty collage. Rambling along the Ringstrasse, I passed by the opera and thought I could faintly hear an aria I must have heard before. Goodbye, my darling. Time is flying. How many of us that afternoon, I wondered, are about to say goodbye to a lover forever. The lyrics of the opera fit perfectly. For it's also as a nature writer named Annie Dillard described it. Living is moving, she wrote. Time is a live creek bearing changing lights. As I move, or as the world moves around me, the fullness of what I see shatters. We blink and the world instantaneously falls apart, but it stitches itself back up together again, reconfigures, 
The woman in the oblique reflection of the tavern window is gone, but another pedestrian passes by. We get something new, though that moment is no more likely to last. You were lucky to get it in the first place, writes Annie Dillard. And she's not wrong. The present is a freely given canvas. That it's constantly being ripped apart and washed downstream goes without saying. It is a canvas nevertheless. The tenor's voice promptly fades away. Our bodies soften to the point of decay. Everything goes down the creek. Someday even Klimt's masterpiece will fall to shreds and all that oil and gold leaf will be lost. At the end of last year I left the train carriage for a couple of months. It had been a while since I'd stepped out of the cycle of the seasons, and it was strange to nick off just as the love creeper vines started showing off their little lilac-coloured buds, to depart as the dusky wood swallows soared again in smooth circles over the yard. But I have something like the habits of a migrating bird myself, or some other restless animal. And so I let myself be lured elsewhere, for no other reason apart from that it felt like I was due to have a look at how things were in a different part of the world again. I came home and the paddy melons acted as if I was a total stranger. But they got used to me again pretty quickly. Maybe they didn't miss me that much. And so too my human mates, who may not have noticed I was gone since I sometimes regress into the habits of a hermit anyway. Within the blink of an eye I was back home, and it was as though I'd not been anywhere else. Such is the pace of modern travel, which makes even the most attentive of us feel as though we've been spirited away on a magic carpet, and relegates the keenest travel experiences to the realm of dreams. Likewise, it sometimes seems as though the seasons change without warning. And now summer, like a distant empire, 
has become more myth than memory. But of course there were plenty of signs that the season would shift. I have every day this year observed one or another slight difference in conditions around this valley. The later sun rises, the fruiting flax lilies and appleberry, the activity of scarlet robins and silver eyes, the grubs on the eucalyptus leaves, the changing colours in the introduced deciduous species on people's properties, first the elms, then the sycamores, now the hawthorns, the poplars, the birches. And each time I go to the dam or the river for a skinny dip, the temperature's a little bit cooler. You can't step in the same river twice, wrote the ancient philosopher Heraclitus, who must have been a keen swimmer like me. But he was writing about transience as well. The knack of rivers for renewing themselves, the whole water cycle, which is much the same as the recycling of carbon. Heraclitus might as well have said, Every day is a new season, each landscape a different world, and you can't even be the same self twice. The other day, feeling a bit down, I went to the river and watched the white flashes in the dashing water spraying around like sparks. Muscular runnels poured between the white boulders. I stood inert in the current, as if letting the difficult news of the past days drain away. You can't flush sorrows away quite that easily. But being near running water seems to help. And of course I dived in then, splashed against the stream's flow, and then let it carry me back down to where I started. I'm still swimming, but there is no longer any doubt that the summer is done. Which means that I've chipped off another season of my life, that another chapter's done. I once passed a whole summer, and then some, researching a character from history. An adventurer, rat-bag, revolutionary named Jorgen Jorgensen. He was born in Denmark in 1780 and later sent to Tassie as a convict. But I'll spare you his life story. After all, he actually wrote an autobiography, although not many people have read it. Of course I have. Nearing the end of his years on Earth, Jorgen Jorgensen had started summing things up. I have had my full share of days, he wrote. Little is there in this world to care for. The joys of human life are fleeting and transient. They may be likened to two friends meeting each other on a hasty journey, who ask a few questions and then part, perhaps forever, leaving nothing behind but a tender regret. Such it is with the joyous hours of our transitory existence. It's a bit depressing, yeah. Can you believe how much of the year has already passed, my friend Jimmy said the other day. I smiled. 
who was bouncing a baby on his knee. He's still youthful, the son of a gun, but his life has changed and the years are accruing behind him. I mean, we're about the same age. And I certainly echoed his sentiment, strange as it is that a quarter of the year has raced past so swiftly. But with a wry smile, I added, Can you believe we're now so old that we say things like, Can you believe how fast time's passing? Jimmy and I, we asked each other a few questions, then parted ways. Joyous hours indeed. I've been camping a lot lately. The other night on the coast, I pitched my tent and watched a glorious sunset. The moon rose strong and firm, in contrast to the way colour spilled over the sea. That leaked out like egg yolk. The moment was an invitation to stop for a minute and take a deep breath. To simply be, as they say. To meditate. But not so far away from me, a woman sat with a notepad and pen. It was as if she was assessing the sunset. Now, when I was about 18 years old, I made a rule that whenever I saw strangers scribbling onto a piece of paper, I would ask them what they were up to. And so the other evening, I approached that woman and asked her, I'm writing a book, she said. It's going to be called The History of Sunsets. She was English, from Sheffield, and she had the sort of cheeky grin that made it easy to believe she was taking the mickey out of me. Except she showed me a folder of her scrawlings, full of data. There was hardly any empty space on each page. There were marginalia and footnotes everywhere. I squinted at it, trying to work out how to interpret all she'd scribbled there. That cheeky grin started to look like the smile of the slightly crazed. Okay, see here, she said. These are measurements about the sunset. In this column, for example, I've evaluated the apricocence. Yeah, okay, I made that word up. But you know what it is. That slightly pinky orange reflection on the slick of water that lingers on the sand as the waves recede from the shore. Right? You can't tell me that apricocence isn't the perfect word for it. Ooh, look at that one. 4.2 seconds. That's good. 
as well as crunching such numbers. My sunset scientist had collated descriptions of different sunsets. You know, qualitative rather than quantitative data. She'd scoured libraries and archives for mentions of sunsets made by residents of that particular stretch of coast, taking quotes from early colonists through to more recent poets. Turns out a lot of folks have waxed lyrical about sunsets over Great Oyster Bay. And this woman had a catalogue of clichés that went for pages and pages. I worried she'd have found some of my own banal observations. Oh yes, I look these up everywhere I go, she said. And I've travelled all over, tabulating these sunsets, in all seasons, on every continent. You never just know who you're going to help keeping track of these things. By then the sun had gone. That apricocence had given way to fragments of lunar light shimmering on the surface of the water. I wondered if my new friend had a word for that as well, or if that fell outside the bounds of her field of study. Maybe that'd be the next book. I'd camped out in the mountains only a week before that. Then I was with a couple of cobbers, a pair of absolute yobbos I've known for far too long. We had filled our backpacks with cheese and frozen wallaby mints and fancy plonk and hadn't left enough space for tents. So we strung up a tarp instead and curled up beneath that. And the frost had begun to settle from, I don't know, about nine o'clock in the evening. So we buried ourselves in our sleeping bags and tried to burrow away through the long, freezing night. And it turned out that while we were cocooned against the cold, we missed a massive display of the Aurora Australis. Oh yes, brilliant reds and greens flashed over the glacial lake we'd camped beside, and all my mates and I saw was the insides of our eyelids. Well, you can't see everything. And who needs to watch the boring old solar wind flinging bits of oxygen and nitrogen about, eh? Just like a breeze at the tip tossing plastic rubbish, am I right? There are some folks who believe that the whole world is fleeting and transitory, like vapour or mist. You cannot grasp it. They say there is a real world beneath or beyond all that, something more tangible even though it's metaphysical. I feel like this gives matter a raw deal. How could you put your hands on a boulder and declare that it's an illusion? Yet at the same time, a saying the history of sunsets seems a hopeless exercise, doesn't it? And there's nothing like an aurora to make you ponder the nature of existence. I have seen them before, on nights when I haven't stuffed my face away from the cool night air. Some phenomena can cause you to query the essence of reality. These fleeting things like a change of light, like sunrises and sunsets, like auroras.
Malak dreams. While the southern lights danced their merry jig over the lake, changing the sky to such colours that they may also require made-up names to describe them. I was dreaming. I nearly drowned, stepping off a rock ledge with a heavy backpack on, depositing myself into the drink. I remember thinking, to survive is going to take all my strength. And with much effort I did, I resurfaced. What would it have meant to have drowned in a dream, I wondered. Though I didn't have much time to dwell on it, because then I was at a music festival, and the lead singer of a band wanted to kiss me. The end. There are also those who reckon that life wouldn't be beautiful if it wasn't for the impermanence of it. For them, the concept of eternity is painful. It would be like sailing across the doldrums forever. These people might say that even if we knew the time span we had for certain things, for friendships, for love affairs, for life, it would all lose some of its potent mystery. It is the acute sense that it all must pass us by, at some unspecified time, which makes life poignant, poetic. All my life, my way of loving was to say goodbye. That's what the poet Marina Tsvetaeva once wrote. Perhaps it's also true of the world. Its way of loving us is to present us with phenomena that are always poised to leave us. In autumn, with rainfall, a great beast emerges from its lair. I am speaking of the rain moth. Okay, it's just a moth, but it's sometimes as big as the palm of your hand, with large wings of grey and brown and cream. And I see them batting up against the carriage windows, their eyes somewhat demonic when caught in the beam of my head torch. 
glowing green and piercing into my soul. The rain moth has a short life, in the form that we mostly see it in anyway. For about a night, the moths flap about. They mate, and then the adult female deposits a huge number of eggs, scattering them about the place in what's apparently some sort of world record for its category. Each female may have more than 40,000 eggs ready to deploy. Then the larvae emerge from the eggs, and these live underground, gnawing at roots for sustenance. And come some damp autumn evening, the rain moth will emerge again from its den. They do look urgent, these rain moths, as they make their ragged flight around the yard some nights. I suppose if I only had twenty-odd hours to make my life on earth count, I'd want to be getting on with things too. And it's not as if they're guaranteed that allotted time as well. I've sometimes seen tawny frog mouths descend from the forest, gobs gaping, snapping up dozens of the moths in what must be a pretty filling banquet for them. The root meaning of the word ephemeral literally is lasting a day. Ephemeros was an ancient Greek word for daily. And in modern Greek, a newspaper is an ephemerida. That might be a useful way to think of the news as that which may only last a day. Of course, reports in online newspapers rarely survive even a full 24 hours. Like the moths, they may get devoured whole before they make any dent in the world. Is it strange to try and accrue all the stories of this planet in the one place, day after day? I think about our own anthologies of incidents and events, and how these impact us. It's very easy to get rattled by the news of elections here or earthquakes there, clear-felled forests, economic turbulence, the changing climate, football results. It's baffling to think about how many things can happen on the planet in a single day, how any human life is now made up of an infinite amount of moving parts. I don't regret or resent that I've kept up with the news from time to time. It's been useful to know about what happens in the world, how it is for others beyond our ken. But how many reports, how much news, how much ephemera can we handle? Each reporter tells the tidbit they've found with a fierce sense of urgency. All animals must learn to prioritise information. But when the data is coming from far and wide instantaneously... It's a skill that we really need to finally hone. Because otherwise we risk getting overwhelmed and short-circuiting. Or to put it another way, getting washed aside in these torrential streams of news. My guess is that there is minimal news for ephemeral moths. 
They sense their immediate surrounds and interpret that. But as far as I can tell, there are few morals or rituals in their search for a mate. The female rain moth's version of mothering has no judgment attached. She does not carry the great burden of guilt about strewing her eggs anywhere and everywhere, come what may. Meanwhile, what matters to our ever-changing society, the way we're meant to do things, is always churning, transforming. It's hard to pin down. And it gets harder and harder, therefore, to lay down roots. Almost monthly fads and fashions and trends change. And I'm not just talking about how we look, but how we speak, what we care about, who we think we ought to be. We quickly look over our shoulders dismissively at who we once were and have a quiet sense that who we are now will be outdated pretty soon as well. None of this is inherently bad, but it's tiring. It taxes the brain. Every so often I take a few days off the internet, read no news, only that of the forest around me. And now on this autumn evening I tear lengths of the local gazette and place them in my fire pit out front. Then I take gum leaves and bits of bark and twigs and branches broken off by the wind and I set it all alight. It strikes me that the sparks are flapping off into the night like glimmering moths. But tomorrow I'll catch up on what's going on in your neighbourhood. See how the moths are going over there. Around the same time that Gustav Klimt was working on his water nymphs slash mermaids slash silverfish, a woman known as Fanny Cochrane Smith was asked to sing into a grandiose sound recording device, and her voice would subsequently be recorded on wax cylinders, which are now in museum archives.
Fanny's song, or so I'm told, is about a hero, strong and fast, as swift as a bushfire racing through scrub. It's not as if her people hadn't known how rapidly things could change. They'd seen the speed of a swooping falcon, the tyranny of wild winds, rivers in flood. Their families themselves had hastened to the hunt and encouraged fire's fierce appetite across the land. But at the beginning of Fanny Cochran Smith's century, no one could have predicted just how drastic the change would be. That Fanny's voice would be the last to be heard in her particular language. Who would credit that such fixtures, like kin, country, spirits and mother tongue, could dissolve at the hands of visitors who'd hardly been heard of when Fanny's mum was born. But much that was once said to be permanent has proven its transience. When you think of human history, we're not that far in years from Fanny's immediate ancestors. And yet we are born into the throes of change. I suspect that now, few of us hold much faith in permanence. We climb the hills, perch in the branches, watch the horizon and wait for fire. We can't be surprised if the view we once saw from that vantage point has changed entirely. A new subdivision having gone up, for instance. Many of us don't know where we'll live next year, who our friends will be, what we'll do for work. And our willingness to accept this idea, these anxieties, would be foreign to almost anyone who's lived before us. And although for people it's always been possible that bad news is around the corner, it seems to be that our awareness of that fact has intensified. A few weeks back I was talking with a friend of mine, a writer, who also happens to be an Aboriginal man. He suddenly blurted to me how much he resented the thought of dying. When I was a young'un, he said, I used to lie in my bed and hate the fact that one day I'd go. I reckon that's why I became a writer, he told me, as if writing could make you immortal. But he's not the first to mull on this. The oldest literary works that we have are elegies, memorials. Stories keep things alive, albeit in an alternate realm. I'm sure that in the future that this writer's name will live on, attached to the works he's produced. Readers will look on his yarns in the same way that we read the stories of those who lived in other centuries. His work will record something of those of us who lived with him. 
each of us contributing to the shape of our world. And now I had to wonder if my impulse wasn't the same, because I too have kept scrupulous journalists for the past 15 years, and I hope they survive. For whatever else they may be worth, they preserve something of the beauty and dreams of my friends and myself in this curious period of history. In real time, it may be no consolation to anyone at all, but I find some comfort in knowing that this work could keep us all somehow alive, as the shadows of strangers, drifting into the future tense, shuffling between today and tomorrow. Here in the train carriage, I look around and see the works of thousands of authors, many of them long dead. And I realise that they have somehow managed to firm up the flow of time. Verweile doch, they've said. And their present has been preserved. The vast majority of life has still flurried away. But to have grasped anything is an act of magic, don't you think? Some of it has endured for thousands of years... And here it is, in my little shack in the bush. And yet, once or twice, hidden in crevices in the train carriage, I have found an enemy of this immortality. This nemesis is a small primitive insect called the silverfish. It's quite a beautiful critter, to my eyes at least. Just a couple of centimetres long, with slim, feathery antennae and a moon-grey exoskeleton. But beautiful as they are, to the man who has 3,000 books in his bush abode, they're a bit of a worry. I usher the little buggers out whenever I see them. But who knows where in my library they're hiding out munching on the pages of these works of literature. All archives, I guess, are at risk of destruction. I do sometimes wonder what writing of mine will go on after my body is disintegrated, and what worth any of it will have. In some respects, there's no point contemplating this. But we writers must also admit that this is part of our lot. And as it was for Faust, it's a bloody fraught situation we've found ourselves in. From the very first time a poet put their words into the strange shapes of an ancient alphabet, our art has been that of trying to keep alive that which has long since passed us by. No one knows what will actually come before the eyes of future observers. And you don't want to miss too many beautiful moments in your life trying to make them endure for someone else. But for a few of us, that bet's already been made. And we seem to have little choice but to try and make what we see outlast us. 
you never do know what will go on. After all, the song of Fanny Cochran Smith survives. Like so much that might have been thought lost at a certain point of history. <laughs>